This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. of the life of the church, there has been a, a creed, an ancient creed, and that one of those very first creeds was a very simple responsive reading where somebody would say, he is risen, and everybody would respond, he is risen indeed. Let's try that. You've got it, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. You sound so good this morning. Let me invite you to uh, say it again with a little more emphasis on the right syllable, if you would. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alive for the very first time. Alive for the very first time. When our youngest son, Nathan, was maybe two and a half or maybe three or three and a half, somewhere in there, Christy and I took him down to the Bullfrog Festival down in Lake Worth. I'm sure a lot of you have been to the Bullfrog Festival over the years. And it's one of those typical community festivals where they have a lot of uh, games and things to sell and activities to do. They have bed races there, which are a ton of fun. And, and it's always a great event. And uh, we went there. And, of course, one of the things that they have at events like this is they have a little carnival. And in this little carnival, they had all different kinds of rides. But they had a kiddie section, too, Right. And so we're walking around Nathan. Again, he's very small. Uh, and we get to the kiddie section where all these rides are for the kids. And Nathan seems intrigued by the kiddie rides. In fact, he's drawn to one particular ride that has little cars on it. Now, these little cars are about maybe this long. They're maybe about this tall. They have a little steering wheel in them. And you understand it. They're attached to this apparatus, much like a carousel. They just go around in a circle. And they go around in a circle at a very s slow pace. And Nathan seemed to want to get on that ride, so we got him a ticket, and, and we got him into the ride. We put him into the car, and he sat down gingerly in the car, and he took hold of the, of the wheel, and he began to look straight ahead. He was serious about his first driving experience, <laughs> which all of you young people should be. And the ride took off, and Nathan came around, uh, and when we could see his face again, you could tell there was something brewing in him. His, Eyes were percolating a little bit. There was something moving inside him. And it came around the second time, and you could see a bit of a crack of a smile coming out of him. And it was as though he was proud that he was taking his first drive, but he wasn't sure if he should be proud or not. Is this something I should be doing? Is this something I should be experiencing or not? And when he came around the third time, his little bit of a smile began to erupt into a monstrous beam. And by the time the fourth time and the fifth time around, he was with abandon, uh, enjoying his first drive in the car. And I have no doubt that part of the reason he was enjoying it so much was because it was his first chance to really feel like he had his own identity. And I suggest to you this morning that him feeling like he had his own identity was, was that maybe in his little life, 
For the first time, he felt like he was alive. Alive. For the very first time. Do you remember what it feels like to be alive for the very first time? Do you remember? I've told my story many times. Let me recount it again for you just briefly this morning. I was raised in the church. I went to Sunday school all my early days. I knew all the answers about Jesus and Noah and Moses and all those things. And when I got into high school, we had a youth director that was a wonderful man, uh, a great uh, person to look up to, and he was instrumental in my faith journey because he got to the point where he would look at me and he would say to me, Frank, I don't want to hear what your Sunday school teachers taught you when you were growing up. I want to know who Jesus is to you. I don't care about what somebody else said. I want to know who he is to you. In fact, I've said it before. He, got, he was so uh, confrontational that he would get in my face and he would thump me in the chest and he said, Frank, who's Jesus to you? And in my uh, sophomore year of high school, I was at a church camp, a stereotypical church camp in the mountains of southeastern Arizona, the Chiricahua Mountains, Pine Canyon Camp. Uh, how stereotypical can you get, right? And we were around the giant bonfire that night in this amphitheater, and the stars were brilliantly lighting up the sky. Cathedral Rock was right there, this giant rock edifice that we would climb on, and it was an inspirational night. And that night, I was confronted by, by this question, who is Jesus to me? And I realized that, that I, I don't believe that I'd ever opened my heart to Jesus. I told God that night, I said, God, I, I think I've known you with my head, but I don't think I've known you with my heart. I want to invite Jesus into my heart tonight. And I did. And as I walked back to my cabin that night, I felt a peace that I can say, I don't know that I ever felt that peace before, the kind of peace that that passes all understanding as the Bible teaches us. When I awakened the next morning, I was laying in my bunk in my sleeping bag and my eyes popped open and there was a strange feeling that I had. It was a feeling of joy, unlike any feeling of joy I'd ever had in my life. And I was examining myself, why am I feeling like this? Why am I feeling this kind of joy this morning as I've awakened? And it dawned on me, hey, I invited Jesus in and that's Jesus living in me. And there in my bunk uh, in Pine Canyon Camp, when I was a sophomore in high school, I felt alive for the very first time. Alive for the very first time. How about you? Do you remember what it feels like to be alive for the very first time? The Gospel of Luke tells us that on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. They went to the tomb to properly prepare his body for the afterlife. He was killed on Friday. They couldn't embalm his body on Friday night because it was sundown and the Sabbath was beginning and they couldn't do that because it was considered work. So they had to wait till after Sabbath ended, which would have ended Saturday night, which meant they had to wait till Sunday morning. So Luke says the women went to the tomb and they, when they got to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away, which was in itself a, a miracle event. They went inside the tomb and there inside the tomb, they found no body, no Jesus in there. But suddenly there appeared to them two angels and the angels said to them, famous words, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He has risen just as he said. 
Now, I invite you to think about what it would have been like to be one of those women. Going to the tomb, you're going there because you're sad, because you're devastated, because Jesus is dead. You're going to properly prepare his body for the afterlife, the afterworld. And these women are dumbfounded because they see the rock, the stone rolled away. They go into the tomb expecting to see Jesus. He's not there. And oh, by the way, there's two angels there. Talk about a mind-blowing experience. How crazy they must have wondered they were. And yet they were all seeing and hearing the same things. And the angels said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And as they left that tomb, can't you just begin to wonder how they were processing things in their minds? And how with every step that they took, their, their bodies, their spirits had to been lifted a little bit every step of the way because they were realizing that they had just witnessed something miraculous that had happened. This man that they believed was the Son of God, that they were grieving so desperately, was not dead. He was alive. And they felt alive for the very first time. Do you remember what it was like? To feel alive for the very first time? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossae, wrote his letter in large measure to respond to a movement that had, had, had sprouted up within the Roman world that was beginning to be an influence in different places, and it was influencing the Colossian church. And this movement, this philo philosophical movement, uh, was, was called Gnosticism. And many of you know that Gnosticism is based on this word Gnostic, and Gnosis, the word literally means knowledge. The Gnostics believe that in order to have a relationship with God, you had to have a special kind of knowledge. And these Gnostics were infiltrating the church and beginning to, to teach things that were contrary to what they had learned from the beginning about who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. So Paul writes, he writes actually from prison in Rome in about 62 or 63 to respond to the influence of the Gnostics into the life of the church. And we know because of what we understand about the Gnostics now that the Gnostics had three basic questions that were, they were trying to, to interpret into the lives of people, trying to define for people. And I want to invite you to look at these three questions with me for just a few moments this morning. The first question, what is God like and what is his relationship to the world? You see, the Gnostics believe that the world was divided into two parts. There was a good part and there was an evil part. The good part was everything spiritual, non-material. They believed that, that God was separate from uh, the world, that God was good and God was spiritual. And because God was spiritual, God would not pollute himself by interfacing with the humans. The evil, they believed, was everything that was material. All the things of this life, all the things of this world, all the things of the universe, that was all evil. In fact, they believed that the universe, as they understood it then, was, was created by some lesser divine being because God would never create something like this world because God wouldn't have anything to do with it because God was too good, too far above all this to do any kind of creating for us. The second question, how does a human being gain access to God's true presence? The Gnostics believed that it would have been unthinkable for God to enter into a human being 
for God to have a relationship with a human being. They saw humans as trapped, that we are trapped, uh, and that we have this divine spark in us, but it is captive. It is not released until we die, because when we die, we finally get rid of this material body, and this material body is no good. And this idea of incarnation, if you've not heard it before, incarnation is a fancy word that the church has used for many years to say that, that Jesus was, was God incarnate, that God lived in man. Part of the mystery of the gospel, part of the mystery of Jesus is that God was fully God, that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. They didn't believe that Jesus was God. He must be lesser than God because surely God would not want to interface with us puny humans. Then the last question, how does a human find fullness of spiritual life? The Gnostics said that if you would practice what we teach you, then you might be able to have a relationship with God. That if you would live separate from society, if you would follow all these rules that we have laid down, that if you do all these things, then you might be able to have a relationship with God. But it's iffy because only the ones that have this special knowledge are ever going to have a relationship with God. And it's interesting to me that the Gnostic movement and their philosophy was really the same kind of thing that Jesus was fighting against while he was alive, against the Jewish leaders, because the Jewish leaders were saying, if you follow all these rules, then you'll be right with God. So Paul speaks against the Gnostic movement, and you'll hear it as I read to you from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, you'll hear in his words some, some of the ways that he's responding to the Gnostic philosophy. Let me read it to you. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Paul says, just as you were taught, as you, as you were taught when I came and when I taught you about Jesus and when we taught you about the things of God, you must remember those things and not this movement that continues to push you around. He says, you must be rooted. And we get the picture of roots. A tree has to have roots. If a tree is going to survive a storm, its roots have got to go deep. He says, you've got to build on that and that you must follow. There's movement to it as well. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Paul again reiterates, don't buy into this philosophical garbage that is being pushed on you. Don't listen to what they're saying, because if you're going to depend on philosophy for your own salvation, it, it, it's got to be dependent on your ability to reason and ability to think. And, and that's not the way of God, because you cannot encounter God and get close to God until you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the original language, this idea of not letting one, anyone capture you, it, it literally means to look really hard. To look really hard. It's like somebody gives you a contract for your new car or your new house, and Paul's saying, don't forget to look at the fine print. 
Because the fine print will, will tell you that what you're buying is not what you're getting. Jesus wasn't less than God. He was fully God. So quit buying all this stuff that the Gnostics are feeding to you. You are complete with Jesus. Did you know that about you? You are complete with Jesus in your heart. You are complete. Can the church say amen? amen. Verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Paul says, you know, the outward appearances don't matter. The circumcision thing was about outward appearances. Jesus says, or Paul says, the circumcision that you've got to have is the circumcision of your heart. That's what matters, is that you have accepted Jesus because then the sin has been cut away from your life. You, when you got baptized, you, it's as though you were buried with him when you went down into the water and you were raised to new life when you came out. Jesus gives you new life, alive for the very first time. And then he goes on. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to a cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Did you hear what he said in verse 13? You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut off. Then God made you alive with Christ. God made you and me alive with Christ. Canceled our debt. Nailed it to the cross. He displayed it for all to see so that even the philosophers of the day would understand that their philosophical words would not matter anything to the power of God. Alive for the very first time. The Gnostics were trying to prove a point. They were trying to prove that the human mind, the human philosophical way that they were teaching was really the way to experience God. And Paul reminds the Colossian church, as I would remind you today, that it's not, a, it's not about having a particular knowledge of God. It's about knowing God here. It's about having God in your heart. And the only way that you can get God in your heart is to invite Jesus Christ to be the leader of your life. You know, there's a lot of people around who, who like to display their superpowers by going like this, right? Like Aaron Rodgers, you know, at the end of a big pass or he goes in the end zone, I'm Superman, right? Well, there is no Superman, folks. There is a J on somebody's chest and his name is Jesus. He is the Superman of all time. He's the only one. They ought to be able to go like this because he conquered death. You try that on a superhero for once. The Gnostics had three questions. What is God like? And what is his relationship to the world? Here's what God is like. God is love. He desperately loves you. Did you know that? 
And he created all that is because he wanted you and I to enjoy this creation that we have been given. He wants to be in relationship with you. How does a human being gain access to God's true presence? By inviting Jesus in. And if you've not invited Jesus in, if there is not a J on your heart today, I want to encourage you to get a J there by inviting him in. Get him out of just your head and get him into your heart. Because the Jesus that lives in my heart teaches me every single day when I wake up that I am alive for the very first time. Friends, maybe somebody in this room or maybe somebody that's watching at home in desperation for your life because you've struggled and you've been battered by life and beaten by life. Maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching today because you, you, you want to try this church thing out. You've heard about it. You're wondering if it's true. Friends, it's true. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. How does a human find fullness of spiritual life? It's by inviting Jesus in and then getting connected to his body. You know what his body is? Jesus' body is the people that we call the church. The church is not a building. It is people. And the Bible says that we are to be connected to one another because then the Spirit of God begins to move among us and allow the church to be an impact and an influence in our society. And, and who doesn't think that our society needs influencing today, right? It's by getting connected into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our one and our only Savior. So I want to conclude this morning by asking you a simple question. And the simple question is, are you living like he's dead or like he's alive? Are you living like he's dead or like he's alive? Are you living a lowered life or an elevated life? Are you living in a way that's down or are you living in a way that's up? This is a critical question because it has everything to do with your daily life, with your daily living. Are you living like he's alive or like he's dead? It's a question that I was confronted with myself in recent weeks. Many of you know that I went through radiation therapy after my prostate cancer resurfaced. And as a result of that, I I developed some side effects that ended up in me being miserable for about a month and a half or two months in great pain, pain like I've never experienced before. I had to undergo some surgery as a result of it. And In one of those days where I was having some of my pity party because I was so down and distressed and beat up, and I know none of you know what pity parties are like, but let me tell you my story anyway, right? (laughs) In the midst of the pity party, I felt the Spirit of God speak into my heart, and what the Spirit of God spoke into my heart was this, Frank, are you living like he's alive or like he's dead? Are you going to allow the physical suffering that you're going through right now take away your joy of life, your joy of living, because Jesus is alive? Do you believe it or not, Frank? 
And you've got to answer the question for yourself as well. Do you believe it or not? It, whatever you're dealing with right now, whether it's financial or relationship or health, whatever struggle you might be encountering right now, you've got to confront that and you've got to ask yourself the question, am I going to confront this like, a, like Jesus is alive or like he's dead? There's nothing that you will ever encounter in this life that Jesus won't help you over, to, to help you overcome the the challenges, the darkness, whatever it might be. Are you living like he's dead or like he's alive? Friends, that day, those disciples, when they heard the news, he is alive. The grave is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Come on, say it like you mean it. He is risen. Stand on your feet. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. God, we praise you for this truth that we celebrate today. That Jesus is alive. And our hearts, our minds, our lives are filled with joy because of this promise that you give to us that we can stand on today. That Jesus lives. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and for the way that he lives in us. God, may we live for him every single day. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.